Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, in fact, uh, the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And uh, these verses are well towards the end of the psalm, starting at verse 121. This is a fairly difficult passage to read because these are the words of a very godly man. And that makes it difficult for me to read. So here, as we read through, the words of this man of God. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Guarantee your servant's well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes grow weary looking for your salvation and for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant based on your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding so that I may know your decrees. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have violated, violated your instruction. Since I love your commands more than gold, even the purest gold, I follow carefully all your precepts and hate every false way. Your decrees are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commands. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your practice towards those who love your name. Make my steps steady through your promise. Don't let any sin dominate me. Redeem me from human oppression, and I will keep your precepts. Show favour to your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. You're righteous, Lord, and your judgments are just. The decrees you issue are righteous and altogether trustworthy. My anger overwhelms me because my foes forget your words. Your word is completely pure and your servant loves it. I'm insignificant and despised, but I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your instruction is true. Trouble and distress have overtaken me, but your commands are my delight. Your decrees are righteous forever. Give me understanding and I will live. I call with all my heart, answer me, Lord. I will obey your statutes. I call to you, save me, and I will keep your decrees. I rise before dawn and cry out for help. I put my hope in your word. I'm awake through each watch of the night to meditate on your promise. In keeping with your faithful love, hear my voice, Lord. Give me life in keeping with your justice. Those who pursue evil plans come near. They are far from your instruction, but you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your decrees that you have established them forever. Turning now to the New Testament, to um, Paul's first letter to Timothy. Bearing in mind as we read through this that he's writing to Timothy who was in fact the leader of the church at Ephesus and his guidance for 
how the churches of God should be. Chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will also be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favouritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not cannot remain hidden. All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters should not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but should serve them better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. This is the word of God. Thanks, Peter. My name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to be with you this evening. It'd be great if you can keep uh, that second passage opened, uh, 1 Timothy 5. Uh, But I'm going to pray for us as we come to God's word. Please pray with me. Show favour to us, your servants, and teach us your statutes. Uh, Father, I'm conscious tonight, especially, that um, uh, I fall far short of your word. And yet we thank you so much that your word is still true and still good. We pray you'd make us like the writer of Psalm 119, people who desire to hear your word, to understand it. Please make us people who hear it tonight. Please help me to speak it clearly. And may we take hold of it, put it into practice for your glory's sake. Amen. You know those people who have magazines or books next to the toilet? Do you know those sort of people? I heard one or two sneakers. They're the people who have books next to the toilet. Anyway, the book I've got next to my toilet at the moment is called Men of Honour. And it's trying to show you how uh, to help young men become honourable men. But the whole idea of honour is kind of... It's a bit outdated, isn't it? It's a bit kind of, you know, old hat, a bit medieval. It's, sort of, it's the kind of thing that knights do. It's not something we talk about in our culture much, is it? We don't, we're not really big on honour. Maybe Eastern cultures are. But not really us. We'll honour the, you know, the, the sports stars and on Anzac Day, we'll honour the, the war heroes, but, but no one else. Not even the Prime Minister. We draw kind of caricatures of him. It's not honour. And yet tonight, the Holy Scriptures call us to this on, uncommon task. Honour. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 17. 
He says the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium. And you follow the little footnote to the bottom, and it tells you that literally this is double honor. Our church leaders are worthy of double honor, are worthy of honor. And then chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters to be worthy of all respect. Respect's a great translation there, but literally it's the same word. It's calling us to honor our slave masters. Or in our context, perhaps better to say, our bosses. And there's loads of really practical commands in here about how we ought to do those two things. And we could just leap in right now and just kind of get really practical and look at all these commands and nail them and think, uh, how are we going to do this? And we will get there. But I just want to take a step back for a second and say, how do all these commands fit in? Why are we meant to keep them? Why should we do these things? So we're going to take a step back and go back to chapter 1 and try to put it all in context. Um, And we'll see that these commands are part of God's plan for his church. And that his plan is good and pleasing and attractive. That's our first point this evening. So would you come back with me to chapter 1 of this letter? Chapter 1, verse 3. So Paul's telling Timothy what his job is. Chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Why not? Why? Well, he goes on. These... Other things promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. What does Paul want to see happen? He wants to see God's plan promoted. So what is God's plan? Well, it's not some sort of secret thing that God's kind of hatching up, some sort of scheme. His plan is literally his, his household plan, or more literally, his house law. So, so imagine with me uh, period drama, uh, Pride and Prejudice or something, or maybe Downton Abbey. Any fans of Downton Abbey? A few nods. We're not willing to put hands up, but okay, that's all right. I've never seen it. But I, 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 from what I understand, there's this earl of this kind of estate, and um, Robert Crawley, yep, uh, and uh, he has kind of a, let's imagine, a plan for how he wants his estate to work. Everything from what kind of crops he wants to grow. I don't know if he grows crops, but let's imagine. Crops he wants to grow right through to how he wants his bed sheets folded. He has a plan, and he passes on his household plan to his butler and his housekeeper and his manager, and they make it happen, right? That's his household plan. Well, friends, God has a plan, a household plan, how he wants his, his household to operate. Ultimately, his household is the whole of creation. And one day, he's going to bring the whole of creation under his plan. But right now, who is his household? Who is it? It's us, right? Chapter 3, verse 15 tells us the church is the household of God. God's got a plan for you and I, brothers and sisters. And the rest of the letter to Timothy just goes, out, goes on to spell out what that plan's got to look like in the church. What's the practical side of God's plan for us? 
He's talking about it again uh, in chapter 2. Look, look there with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority. Why? Well, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's what God's plan looks like when the church is, is living it out. It looks like this tranquil, peaceful, quiet, not boisterous life together in all godliness and dignity. And why does God want us to live that way? Again, let's read on a bit further. Because, verse 3, this is good. It's just plain old good. Who would have thought that the good life is to live according to God's plan? This is good, and second, it pleases God, our Savior. It makes him happy when we live that way. And finally, it's good, it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We've been talking about that as God's heartbeat. He wants people to be saved. And that happens as they, as they get to see God's plan being enacted, being lived out by his household. It's a great role we have, friends. God sees, as people see us living out God's plan and come to know the truth and be saved. It's a great privilege we have. It's very important to to live out God's household plan. And like I said, the rest of the letter just fills that out. What does it look like for the church? Chapter 2, how how are men and women going to interact in the church? Chapter 3, who should be leaders in the church? Chapter 4, how should Timothy conduct himself in regard to the church? What does it look like? Chapter 5, how should we relate towards widows? And then tonight, how should we relate towards leaders in the church and towards our bosses at work? I just want to take a step back before we get all practical and say, why are we doing this? And the answer is, for our good. Because it's good to live this way. And for God's good, for God's sake. Because it's pleasing to him. And for the sake of the world. To make the gospel attractive to the world. So, that's the idea, that's the context. Let's narrow in and let's get practical and start looking at these two points. Firstly, how do we honor church leaders? Now let's look at verse 17 again. Chapter 5, verse 17. As the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we're talking about the senior office, office holders of the church here, the leaders, the ones who are kind of responsible for the health and direction of the church. And their special work, as you notice, is preaching and teaching. Now for us, that's kind of making, making the equivalent is, is most obviously the church staff team. But I think there's heaps of principles here that are true of all sorts of leaders, Kids, church, hive, whatever it might be. Paul tells us to honor our leaders in four different ways. Ample remuneration, avoiding suspicion, decisive correction, and careful selection. So first, ample remuneration. Like it said there in verse 17 with this strange word, honorarium. I had to look that up in the dictionary. Basically telling us to pay our ministers, right? And it's got to be ample. 
Not, not extravagant. We don't want them to be able to live extravagantly. But we don't want them to stress about money. And the reason Paul gives for, for, for why we should do this, um, in verse 18, aren't especially flattering. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm compared to an ox and a laborer. Uh, verse 18, why should we pay our leaders? Well, for the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And the worker is worthy of his wages. We're to pay them because it says it in Scripture, and it just makes sense, right? When you've got your ox, and he's walking around in circles, threshing your grain with his hooves, don't muzzle him. Let him eat some of the grain. He's working hard for you. You don't want him to keel over. And when your laborer's been working all day for you, he's worthy of his wages. So when your leaders have been working hard, that's the word, that they've been laboring at the word, preaching, teaching, leading groups, whatever it might be, don't muzzle them. Honor them. Give them the pay that they deserve, ample honorarium, as it says. So, brothers and sisters, if you benefit from the ministry of Church by the Bridge here, are you honoring your leaders Financially? Or are you muzzling them? Here's why it's important. If our leaders can't spend their time on preaching and teaching in the Word, it's not good for us together as a church. It doesn't help us together to live out God's plan, a good, pleasing, and attractive plan. That's why. So, are you honoring your leaders financially? I find that a bit awkward to ask (laughs) because I get some of the money you give. Um, But it's God's word. And what makes it a little bit less awkward is that we're reasonable at it. But I want to move on to the second way that we honor our leaders. And that is by avoiding suspicion. Read with me uh, verse 19. It says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. I think, obviously, there's, there's some certain individual accusations we want to take pretty seriously. But what Paul's getting at is, we don't want to be a church where kind of, that's torn apart by rumors and factions, with accusations kind of flying around the place. That's not what we want to be. And, and we could be, because you all know, leaders attract accusations, right? In all walks of life. Take one look at the newspaper, you'll see that. But it's not to happen in God's church. That's not the plan. It's not attractive to the world when we're you know, disuni- ununited and, and not in harmony with one another. Some of you will know, actually, that this um, has, been, has happened in our church in the last couple of years. A single accusation. People heard that and entertained the idea. Gossip. And then mistrust. Factions, broken relationships. Brothers and sisters, when you're hanging out with guys from church, whenever it might be, and someone sort of you know, gossips to you about this thing that this leader's done, just one person tells you, don't entertain it. Keep it alive. Maybe say something to them like, I'm really sorry to hear that. 
I think you should go and talk to that leader about that. And I'm, I'm happy to come with you and support you. But if we're going to be a church that really models God's plan to the world, well, we need to start by not by avoiding suspicion. But if one of our leaders is in significant sin and there's two or three witnesses, well, that's really not going to promote God's plan, is it? And Paul comes down very heavily on that. Let's read on. That's the third thing. Let's read from verse 20. Paul says, Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will also be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. I grew up at a church not too far from here, a flourishing church when I was quite young, and a new minister came along. And uh, he didn't do anything really bad that would get him you know, written up in a newspaper or something. But he was just mean. And no one corrected him. And it took the church 20 years, basically, to recover from that. Sin in our leaders is, is really bad. Sin that goes uncorrected can be disastrous. And so Paul gets really serious here, right? Really serious about this. He says, correct sinful leaders publicly. Seems pretty full on, doesn't it? But I think the kind of principle here is make the correction as public as their influence is. If it's a minister influencing a congregation, then, then correct them before the congregation. Maybe if it was a hive leader, correct them before their hive group. And do it without prejudice or favoritism. You know, it's sometimes very easy if someone's your mate to just kind of let sin slide a little bit. You know, I know they did the wrong thing, but they're a good guy. Don't show favoritism, says Paul. This is much too serious. You've probably heard stories um, about people's lives that have been quite broken. People have been turned off church for the rest of their lives by the sin of church leaders which got swept under the carpet. You heard those sort of stories? And the church leader does the wrong thing. An accusation is, is laid before the, the church hierarchy. But the church hierarchy pay off the victim move on the perpetrator to some other place where they're unknown and the sin festers. It's never dealt with. And the, and the witness of the church is tarnished and God is not pleased. Listen to Paul. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. You want two or three witnesses? How about those three? To observe these things without prejudice doing nothing out of favoritism. This is serious. We mustn't let sin in our leaders just slide. You know, the witness of the church is at stake. The salvation of people out there in the world is at stake. It's so much more important than friendship, not rebuking a, a leader because they're your mate. It might sound like a bit of a dishonor to treat one of our leaders this way. But I've got to say, if you honor the role of a church leader, what it stands for, 
its significance, if you honor that, then please do to do something about significant sin in our leaders. I was corrected just before church this evening. It was hard to hear, but I'm thankful. If one of your hive leaders is in significant sin, please tell Andy. No one else. We don't want accusations flying around. If you think Paul Dale is in significant sin, then please tell the bishop, Chris Edwards, even if Paul's your mate. We need to take sin in our, seri- in our leaders seriously. Well, uh, prevention is better than cure. Uh, and that's where Paul goes next, to our last, our last point here, uh, careful selection. Uh, would you read with me from verse 22? It's the fourth thing. He says, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious. And those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. That's a great little encouragement at the end there, isn't it? To those who do good works that don't get noticed. They cannot be hidden. But the point here is pretty clear, isn't it? Leaders' role is significant. So take your time in selecting them. Some sin's really obvious, and, and you're not going to you know, select someone who's in sin. If, if you did that, you know, we'd be sharing in their sin. Some sin takes a little while to bubble up to the surface, doesn't it? So we've got to take a little while to appoint a leader. So a church here, we won't appoint you to be a hive leader, or even a kids' church leader, until you've been here for a while. You know, we let the kind of your character bubble to the surface. We've taken a while to appoint a new women's pastor, haven't we? Part of the reason is we want to take our time about that. We want to find the right person. Please do keep praying for that process. Uh, but that's the fourth thing. They're the four things, the four ways that Paul wants us to honor our church leaders. Um, there's a bunch of stuff there. I don't know if you just want to maybe just grab hold of one of those things that maybe kind of springs to your mind as something that maybe you need to work on, something significant. Grab hold of maybe just one of them. And that thing about the wine... I have no idea what it's doing there. I really, <laughs> the logic, it just kind of, and it's back again. Anyway, that's verse 23. If you've got any ideas, tell me later. The next thing, moving on to the next thing, uh, honoring masters. This is the second kind of authority relationship. It's a lot shorter. Um, what Paul does here is he kind of takes this kind of well-ordered picture of the church and he moves it in, into your workplace, into your office. And he basically wants to say, honor your boss. Let's read those, those two verses from chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters to be worthy of all respect. So that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters should not be dis- disrespectful to them because they're brothers, but should serve them better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Uh, none of us are slaves even though we might feel like it. Um, but I think we can make a pretty close approximation to the kind of employee-boss thing here. And the idea is clear, isn't it? Whether they're Christian or not, 
respect your boss, honor them. This makes the gospel and God look good. On the contrary, I heard a story during the week about this uh, bunch of guys in the army who were converted to Christianity. And, uh, you know, they were just kind of blown away by God, you know. These guys from eternity past, he's chosen them and into eternity and heaven. And it's all so big and amazing. And, you know, shining your boots just doesn't really seem to measure up to all this amazing stuff. And so they kind of skipped shining their boots. How do you think their commanding officer kind of took that? How did it make the gospel look? It made it look like the gospel supported insubordination. (laughs) That's what it made it look like. I hope you're not disobedient at work. I hope you're not uh, lazy in the office. I hope you don't join in the kind of the back chat about your boss over drinks or over lunch. I hope you don't cut them down. Because once again... The honor of God is at stake, isn't it? He says, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Dishonoring your boss is it's not attractive to the world, to your colleagues. It's easy for them to do. They know all about it. It comes naturally. But imagine if all of us really honored our bosses really well. Like if we were really loyal to them, supported them, actually wanted them to make progress themselves, if if we never spoke badly about them. In fact, we corrected others when they spoke badly about them. What would that say about the gospel? Some of you might be sitting here thinking, oh, that's all right, I can probably do that. I've got a pretty reasonable boss. Others of you are probably thinking, wow, that's impossible. My boss is a jerk. Some of you probably get bullied by your bosses and you don't want to go to the office at all. How are you meant to respect them? Well, let me just say, you've got the opportunity to really stand out. When your boss is hard to respect, when you do it, it speaks volumes. But how do you do it? Well, I think it doesn't mean you've got to somehow convince yourself that your boss is brilliant. You know, oh my goodness, I never realized. They've got to do a flawless character. You know, you don't have to do, you don't have to deceive yourself. But what we're to work at is to honor them as a human and to honor their position. A God-given role as our superior. Honor that. And then honor them in your actions. This is especially true if your boss is a Christian brother or sister. It seems like in Ephesus, there was these, uh, the slaves were kind of getting a bit overly familiar with their bosses, their Christian masters. Kind of, you know, we're both Christians now. We're kind of on the same level. Maybe I'll put my feet up from time to time. Or, I don't know. But Paul flips this kind of familiarity thing back on its head, doesn't he? Because your master is a fellow believer and dearly loved, don't disrespect them. Work harder. Serve them better. I don't know you guys all that well, but uh, I imagine some of you work for Christian organizations uh, or perhaps a a Christian boss. Christian organizations are sadly notorious for being unprofessional. Um, I want to encourage you, if that's you, not to let an unprofessional culture 
become disrespect for your boss. Do your professional best for your brother or sister, your boss. Why? Why should we be working at all these things? Well, the same thing we've been saying all along. Because this, honoring your boss, is good. It's pleasing to our God. And it's attractive to the world. And they're the things. They're, they're, they're this, this kind of little segment of God's household plan for us, his people. How we ought to relate to church leaders and our bosses at work. And it's relatively straightforward, isn't it? It might be a bit tricky working it all out. It's relatively straightforward. But the question is, are we going to do it? Are we going to put this stuff into practice? And I want to just give you one more reason to put it into practice. I'm going to zoom out one more time and look at the context of what's going on here. You see, I've uh, never seen Downton Abbey, um, and I don't know what kind of guy the Earl is. So when he gives his household plan down to his butler and his housekeeper, I don't know why they keep it. Maybe they're scared of losing their job. Maybe, maybe he's a great guy. I don't know. But I do know a bit about our master, the master about, of our household. Uh, let's let Paul tell us a bit about this guy, about our God. Chapter 1, verse 17. After reflecting on God's outrageous mercy, he says this. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our God is worthy of all honor, brothers and sisters. Like, like we've just been singing, worthy of all praise. How great is our God? And so we honor our, our church leaders and our bosses because they're not the real bosses. Because we honor our God. And Paul, in case you think I'm just grabbing one little verse from the beginning, no, Paul actually ends his whole letter in the same way he begins it. So, so look with me at chapter 6, verse 15. Similar sort of language. Our God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's our God. The only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can see him. To him be honor and eternal might. Amen. 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 This theme of us honoring our master, our, our household master, our God, this theme is the beginning and the end of this letter. It's the bookends. Everything else that comes in between, all the other stuff, only makes sense with those bookends. Do you honor this God? Do you want to honor him? Do you want to honor our, our, our master? Well, keep the master's household plan. That's what we're to do. That's how we do it. It would be great for us as a church to be known as a church that honors our church leaders, both in, in, kind of in, in payments and encouragement, but also in keeping them, keeping them on the straight and narrow. It'd be great if we were a people known for, for respecting our bosses, each of us individually. It would be great if God was honored through us as we did that. And if the world could watch on and see us living out his plan and come to know him, know the truth and be saved, it would be good. 
pleasing, pleasing to God. Well, in just a moment, we're going to actually respond um, by praying about these things. We're going to have a time of open prayer. Uh, Feel free to pray about anything you like, whatever's on your heart, but there'll be a few ideas from the sermon about what to pray for as well. Don't feel like you just have to stick to them, though. Um, What I thought we'd do, though, is just take a moment uh, quietly to consider um, maybe just one thing we need to work on from that. One way we need to honour our master a bit better in one of those ways. Might be at church, might be at work. Take some time to think over that and then commit yourself to it. Then I'll pray for us. Once I'm done, please lead us in prayer.